A word of caution. The following episode features descriptions of violence and murder that may be difficult for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13. This week, I'd like to discuss a case that has led many a true crime aficionado down that proverbial rabbit hole. There are plenty of theories in the case of Mary Shotwell Little, and although it initially took place in Atlanta, Georgia in 1965, the victim was born and raised in Charlotte and graduated from what is now UNC Greensboro. She may also have been murdered in North Carolina, but unfortunately, that is something we may never know for sure. What's even more perplexing is that 18 months after she went missing, another young woman with ties to Mary was found murdered in Atlanta. That crime also remains unsolved. There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings, make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there is still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me. Episode 40, Mary Shotwell Little. Mary Shotwell graduated from Myers Park High School and then attended the North Carolina College for Women, now known as UNC Greensboro, entering as a freshman in 1958. In a blog post the school shared about Mary, they mentioned that the time period during which Mary attended college was fraught with change. It was the early 1960s, after all. The enrollment of the school had just exceeded 2,500 students. The Woolworths lunch counter sit-in orchestrated by a group of black students occurred when she was a sophomore. The campus was continuing to expand and grow. While in school, Mary sang in the college choir and served as chairman of the elections board. She was passionate about advancing the status of women, especially in the workforce, and she received a degree in secretarial administration in 1962, one of 36 female students. She was looking to explore the world outside of North Carolina and took a job as a secretary for the Citizens and Southern Bank in Atlanta, rooming with a group of other women in an apartment. Not long after she arrived in the city, she met a man named Roy Little Jr., who was a 24-year-old Citadel graduate who had just finished active duty as an Army lieutenant. After dating for 10 months, they married on September 4, 1965. The couple moved into an apartment in South Decatur. They were just entering the newlywed phase of their relationship when Mary mysteriously vanished on October 14th of that same year. Three reporters worked on an overview of Mary's case for an article that ran in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in March of 2004. On the evening that she went missing, Mary's husband Roy was out of town, training to become a bank auditor. She went to the grocery store after work to get supplies for a dinner party she had planned with her husband. Then she met a female co-worker for dinner at the Lenox Square shopping mall in the Buckhead district. After dinner, the two women did a little more shopping and then headed to her car around 8 p.m. The next morning, Mary failed to show up for her job and didn't phone in, which was unusual for her. 
the co-workers she had met the night before told their boss where Mary's car had been parked at the mall, and he phoned security to see if the 1965 metallic pearl-gray Mercury Comet was there. They couldn't locate it. Mary's husband was contacted on his business trip south of Atlanta, and he began making his way back home. Mary's boss decided to drive over to the mall to see if he could find anything out. He found her car sitting in the crowded parking lot. In the book, Charlotte True Crime Stories, written by Kathy Pickens, she shared that the car was covered in a fine layer of red dust, as if it had been driven out on a dirt clay road, and Mary's license plate had been replaced with one that police later determined was from a stolen car in Charlotte. Inside Mary's car, police found groceries in the back seat. A full set of women's underwear, along with a pair of pantyhose with a cut in one toe, was folded and placed on the console between the two front bucket seats. Still missing was her purse, keys, olive green dress, raincoat, and jewelry, including her wedding and college rings. There was blood smeared on the steering wheel, the driver's side door, inside the passenger window, and on the front seat. But it was noted that there was not a large volume of blood, more like what you would find from a nosebleed. Had someone staged the inside of the car? The odometer showed it had also been driven 41 miles that were unaccounted for. What followed was a search that included thousands of concerned residents. This was back when Atlanta was a much smaller area, and people couldn't fathom a young woman being snatched from a mall parking lot. Military reservists combed the woods around the Lenox Square Mall. Pilots conducted searches, hoping to pick up a sighting from over the city. Radio stations asked people to search their property for the items missing from Mary's car. Jim Ponder, an FBI liaison with the Atlanta Police Department, searched the woods alongside Interstate 85, including abandoned wells. Where was Mary? An article titled The Case of the Missing Bride on the website Buckhead.net reported that some strange things had been happening to Mary in the days leading up to her disappearance. Co-workers reported she had received roses at the office. No one knew who they were from, and they didn't seem to be sent by Roy Little, Mary's husband. She was also getting unsettling phone calls at work, and someone reported hearing Mary say, I'm a married woman now. You can come over to my house anytime you like, but I can't come over there. Yet she also expressed a fear of being home alone with Roy gone, and alone in her car. This was unusual behavior for her. Posters with Mary's photo and information about a $1,000 and eventually a $3,000 reward were plastered all over the city. About a month after she went missing, police, led by Atlanta homicide detective Jack Perry, discovered Mary's credit card had been used at an all-night gas station in Charlotte in the early morning hours of October 15th. Several hours later, it was used again in Raleigh. Both receipts bore what appeared to be Mary's signature and read Mrs. Roy H. Little, Jr. Perry traveled to North Carolina to interview attendants at the two gas stations. In Charlotte, the employee said he remembered seeing a woman with a cut on her head trying to hide her face, traveling in the company of a man giving her orders. 
She was in the front seat of the car covered with an opened road map. In Raleigh, the attendant said he had also seen a bloody woman traveling with two men. I'm going to interject here and mention that if I had witnessed something like this, I probably would have been disturbed and tried to report it, but maybe that's just me. These men were giving statements more than a month after Mary went missing, and only when the police showed up to ask them questions. Mary's family from Charlotte was stunned to hear that Mary had supposedly been in the city right after her disappearance, especially since they had traveled down to Atlanta in the days after she went missing. The article on the Buckhead.net website said this about Perry's thoughts on the investigation. Perry could get no good description of the car seen in the Tar Hill State, and he learned to his dismay that the license plate on the vehicle had been a stolen one, taken to North Carolina. He was dealing with someone who took bizarre risks, someone who was either incredibly reckless or diabolically clever. But the identity and motive of this person remained as shadowy as before. The trail went cold. Perry was convinced something in the evidence and the eyewitness accounts had to be wrong, given the unusual nature of the timeline and places Mary had allegedly been seen, but he couldn't figure out what the piece of the puzzle was that didn't fit. The next piece of this puzzle occurred 18 months after Mary went missing from Atlanta. Before we continue, let's take a quick break to talk about our sponsor. If you're anything like me, you may be looking for a way to level up your writing. Or perhaps you have an idea for a blog but don't know where to start. WOW Women on Writing has an amazing list of online classes designed to help writers in all stages of their careers. Some, like the submissions consultation offered by Chelsea Clammer, allow you to submit up to 4,500 words for only $25. In return, Chelsea offers an assessment of your writing, suggestions on where to submit the piece, and manuscript formatting to each journal's guidelines. There's also a beginner blogging bundle that is a self-guided course lasting four weeks. In the course, you'll generate ideas for your blog, plan content, design images, and make a plan for posting. You can begin this course once you've paid the fee of $80. Instructor Melanie Faith is also offering a five-week course called Food Writing for Fun and Profit, blogs, restaurant reviews, recipes, fiction, memoir, and more, beginning on April 11th. You can learn more about these courses and more by visiting wow-womenonwriting.com and clicking on the Classes tab. And now, let's get back to the show. A 22-year-old woman named Diane Shields was found murdered in May of 1967 in Atlanta. Diane was a secretary from Alabama who had been moved into Mary's department at Citizen and Southern National Bank after Mary went missing. She even sat at Mary's old desk at one point. She roomed with some of Mary's former roommates in Buckhead. At the time of her death, she had moved into a place with her sister and took a receptionist job at another company in downtown Atlanta, Associated Industries of Georgia. In the fall of 1966, she also received a bouquet of five roses one day, and told her co-workers she didn't know anyone by the name on the card. She was frightened because she knew Mary had also received roses at her office before she went missing. She eventually called the police, and they were able to track the mysterious sender of the roses down 
and learned he was a former employee at the CNS Bank who had been let go for inappropriate behavior with some of the women at work. Diane left work on May 19, 1967. She never made it home. Police spotted her car, a blue and white Chevy Impala, around 2.30 a.m. near the drive-in window of a laundry service in town. The keys were still in the ignition, and the trunk was wide open. They found Diane's body shoved in the back of the car between the spare tire and a cardboard box that contained a copy of the cookbook, Betty Crocker's New Dinner for Two. The young woman was fully clothed, and there were no signs of sexual assault. She was still wearing her engagement ring. Diane had been strangled, beaten, and a piece of a paper towel and a scarf had been shoved down her throat. Here's an interesting piece of information I found when looking at a timeline of Diane's case. According to that article in the 2004 Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Diane had told some of her friends back home in Guntersville, Alabama, that she was working undercover with police, trying to solve the disappearance of a woman named Mary. Her friends told police she'd been acting evasive in the months before she was murdered, missing appointments, and disappearing for long periods of time without telling anyone, even her fiance, where she was going. Diane's case also went cold. In a few of the different articles I found, there were reports of unsubstantiated rumors that illegal activity had been occurring at the bank where Mary and Diane had both worked, including alleged prostitution, embezzlement, sexual harassment, and even the Dixie Mafia. There was also some sort of alleged bizarre internal investigation going on, with bank personnel seeking out employees who were lesbians or homosexual men. A man named Clarence Lee Crumley spoke to police and said he had been friends with Diane. He suspected Mary and Diane's deaths were connected and tied to the personnel department at CNS Bank. He told a former roommate of both Diane and Mary about some of the ongoing issues he was aware of and was fired from his job not long after that. The police never revealed exactly what he had told them. There's another strange footnote to this case, and I'm still not sure what to think about it. An attorney named Susan Carpenter Scott, who had once lived in Georgia, obtained some records from law enforcement that contained notes from a 1966 FBI interview. There was an inmate in Georgia who had allegedly confessed to knowledge of Mary's kidnapping and murder. The notes are still archived at maryshotwelllittle.blogspot.com, but I'll try to condense them here for our purposes. A Georgia State Prison inmate named Larry Stargold, who was already serving a life sentence, told two FBI agents that two of his acquaintances had been paid $5,000 each to kidnap Mary. They knew to wait for her at the mall. Stargold told conflicting stories. He claimed he had seen them on the night of the abduction at the movie theater where he worked, and they told him they needed to get to Mount Holly, North Carolina, later on that night. One of the men supposedly had blood on his clothing. Three weeks later, Stargill said he accompanied the two men to Mount Holly, where they visited a house in the woods. Stargill claims a woman he assumed was Mary Shotwell Little was being held inside, bruised and bound. A few hours later, the three men put Mary in a car and proceeded to drive back to Atlanta. But on the way, 
one of the men stabbed and killed Mary before they made it back. Stargill described this house in Mount Holly as being painted green with a wraparound porch and a dog run outside. You could hear the distant sound of a train whistle from the house, he said, and there were no other homes nearby. But one of the men he claims abducted Mary from Atlanta was confirmed to have an alibi from his job with the city of Mount Holly Water Department at that time. The FBI agents were hesitant to believe Stargill's story because there were so many conflicting details and timelines. And at one point, he also claimed Mary was buried in a construction zone at the Atlanta airport. In October of 2014, an article in the Charlotte Observer reported that a retired Atlanta police detective named Ray Pate was exploring the Mount Holly area, and he believed he had located the home Stargill claimed Mary was held in. Both Larry Stargill and Ray Pate have since passed away. Here are some other details Susan Carpenter Scott gleaned from the 600-page report she received on Mary's case from the Atlanta City Legal Department. A woman told police that on the day Mary went missing, a man attempted to get into her car in the parking lot of the Lenox Square Mall. Frightened, she managed to drive off. She described the man, and the next day, a man matching his description reportedly went into the mall and purchased three sets of men's clothing. He was disheveled, but he had plenty of money to buy these items. Sometime in the 1970s, Evidence from both the Mary Shotwell Little and Diane Shields cases were put into the same box, breaking the chain of evidence. Then the box disappeared entirely. Cold case detectives claimed that there had been flooding at the office at one point, and evidence was moved, but the box hasn't been seen since. There was no confirmation that anyone saw Mary or her co-worker, a woman named Ela Stack, eating dinner or shopping together on the night she went missing. The police only had that co-worker's word for it, and people have always wondered why Mary went shopping for groceries before her evening out with the co-worker. There were perishable items in those bags. Most people don't hold groceries in their car for three or four hours, especially if they know their plans ahead of time. Those bags of groceries were still in the backseat of the car when it was found. The FBI actually closed the formal investigation into Mary's disappearance after a few weeks, citing that they believed she had not been taken across state lines. But this doesn't make sense given the discovery of the gas receipts from North Carolina and the eyewitness accounts from the attendants. After reading over the first draft of this script, I realized I was missing crucial information about Mary Shotwell Little's husband. Roy H. Little Jr. I went back and did a more extensive search, finding additional details in an article from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Investigators found the man cold and not very concerned about the whereabouts of his wife. He seemed more concerned about getting the car back from the police. It was his meticulous knowledge of the mileage on the comet that showed 41 miles were unaccounted for on the odometer. He refused to take a lie detector test. Some of Mary's roommates reportedly didn't care for Roy and decided not to attend their wedding. But police could find no concrete evidence tying Roy to Mary's disappearance, and there didn't appear to be a motive. Mary only had a modest life insurance policy at the time. Executives at CNS Bank confessed 
They intentionally made his work environment uncomfortable after Mary went missing so that he would quit. Within three years of her disappearance, he obtained a divorce from Mexico, remarried, divorced again, and remained living and working in Atlanta. The most recent article had him living in Florida. It doesn't appear that he ever made an effort to find out what had happened to Mary. Is the explanation of what happened to Mary Shotwell Little more simple than anything we've discussed here? Several years ago, retired FBI agent Jim Ponder discussed his theory with a reporter from the Charlotte Observer. He believes this was a crime of opportunity and that an unknown man abducted Mary from the parking lot at Lenox Square Mall, sexually assaulted her, brought her car back, and then switched cars. Then he drove her to North Carolina, where she was murdered somewhere in the Raleigh area. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.